Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. A growing list of countries have evacuated diplomats and citizens from Sudan's capital as fighting continues into the second week. We'll bring you the very latest. Gardi begin a GSOC inquiry after investigator resigns over alleged link to Hutch Party. But I think the fact that swift action has been taken uh, is very important in terms of maintaining confidence um, in GSOC. I requested this report uh, on Friday evening. I've received the report on Monday evening. The matter has now been referred to the Gardaí. The Gardaí have now agreed to investigate any potential criminal behaviour. Minister of State Niall Collins set to face calls in the Dáil this week for clarification over the sale of council-owned land in County Limerick that's been the subject of recent claims. Tonight, he responds. And later, grants to renovate vacant homes are set to be increased under plans from the Minister for Housing, Dara O'Brien. But will it be enough for hopeful homeowners to join our conversation online with your comments and your questions? It's hashtag tonight, VMTV. People are making desperate attempts to flee Sudan as violence continues, with the Department of Foreign Affairs confirming that a total of 50 Irish citizens have been evacuated. Well, for more on this story, Fine Gael Senator Martin Conway, Independent Senator Tom Clonan and Irish Times Africa correspondent Sally Hayden are here with me in studio. And I'm joined via Skype this evening by Dr Zanira El-Bashir, who grew up in Ireland with her siblings and her sibling Parents and three siblings have had to flee Sudan capital in recent days because of continuing violence. You're very welcome to the programme. We're going to start with you, uh, Dr El-Bashir. Your mum, your dad, your three siblings are in Sudan. I know you've been in, you know, communication as often as you can with them and communication is very, very difficult. They have now fled to somewhere more safe. But tell me what it was like communicating with them, with this violence playing out in the backgrounds? I mean, it's just been completely unimaginable. Um, This is not something any of us have ever been used to, you know, uh, completely normal lives up until last week. Um, Up until that point, you know, even the the communication that we have had with them was quite um, scanty. At the moment, the internet services are completely out, um, which means that they can't receive any communications from the Irish embassy. Um, It's been very difficult for me to contact them, even through normal phone carriers um, people in the country are struggling to get in contact with even their neighbors through these through these um, through these really poor signals and um, I mean I've been fortunate enough to actually have been able to sp- speak to my family for even a couple of minutes at the time um, and I know people who have not been able to get in contact for for days now so I can always call myself fortunate for even even a brief um, word or two just to say that they're safe and why did they decide to leave where they were living 
What danger did they face? So as you know about the situation in Sudan, very suddenly um, it's been completely um, terrorizing. They are in the capital of Khartoum, which is where the majority of the airstrikes gunfire. They were uh, living under threat of um, any of these explosions basically um, hitting our home, as they have done in many homes in our neighborhood as well. Um, we know too many people who have, a, you know, uh, known family members, family friends who have passed away in this in this violence, people who have been severely injured. That was not a risk that they were able to take um, by staying in the capital. Um, so they have had to leave, um, which in itself was a risky situation. I mean, the roads aren't any better. I'm just so fortunate that they've even managed to get out of the capital, um, you know, to, to somewhere that's relatively a bit more safer. But you know, it's even that situation at the moment, they can't stay there forever. Um, supplies are running very low. This is this is a very sort of quick decision to leave just to even reach somewhere that's even a little bit more safe than where they are at the moment. And what are conditions like in the area that they have moved to? And I know you're even quite conscious of, you know, revealing their new location, such as sort of the sense of, of threat that is there at the moment. But what are conditions like for them there? I mean, you can only imagine it's not somewhere that they're used to being at all. Um, it's a very rural. Um, it's a very rural area. Um, they don't have any access to internet services, um, many phone lines either. Um, they've basically got a shelter and accommodation, um, sustenance, and that's pretty much it at the moment. And how long? Not really much means to leave. Even the you know even the area that they've had, they've had enough petrol just to get them there. But as you know, the situation currently even getting enough petrol in your car to go anyone else, anywhere else has been a struggle. There's no petrol anywhere in, this, in, the, in the country. Um, so at the moment, they're essentially stuck, um, not even able to reach the capital, basically, where all these evacuations are taking place. Um, these evacuations have been great for the people who've been able to use them, but for families like my own, it's there's too many factors uh, for why that would be difficult for us to... to to even contemplate at the moment. Uh, and did they um, contemplate it at one point, Doctor? Did they consider so we're still, we're still contemplating. Obviously, my 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 uh, concern at the moment is just getting them out by any means possible. There's obviously the, the evacuations that are going through, but the issue with those is that you have to go back through the capital and back through these very, very dangerous areas um, to a plane that may or may not be full. Um, I know many people have been stranded trying to get these evacuations, and that's just not a risk I want to take with my parents, three of my siblings, one of whom, who, you know, has special needs. It's not easy for them to move around for these, these chances and these chance flights. They are great for the people who are able to access them. Um, and the Irish Embassy have been great um, in, in, in responding to us with these queries. However, at the moment, it's not something that's very feasible um, for us to consider. So I'm left to, you know, being outside the country, I'm left researching other ways of, of how can we possibly leave the area that they are in the safest way possible. Obviously, everything's a risk in itself, and, and it's just weighing up those options. How are they bearing up at this point, in particular, your, your siblings? Um, so I think it's been particularly difficult um, on my siblings, um, especially my younger siblings. This isn't, you know, for the first few days when I was talking to them, every time I did speak to them, you could just hear gunfire and explosions in the background. Um, they've not been able to sleep, as many families in Sudan have not been able to sleep not only to the noise, but the constant threat. You know, how can you sleep when when there are explosions happening outside your window, when you know people who are um, dying outside, when you know that the area that you're in is um, is just very labile and, and 
the situation could change at any moment. It's not something that I can imagine. You know, it's it's anxious. We're anxious enough outside thinking about it, let alone having to to um, to live it. Yeah, and I'm sure for you. I mean, I know you're in the UK at the moment and you are able to communicate with them, but sporadically, very, very stressful knowing that they are there and that, you know, what they have is enough to do them in the very, very short term. But beyond that, they're not quite sure what the future is. No, it's a situation that is um, getting worse. I mean, initially, we all thought this was going to end in a day or two. No one thought that this would be dragging on to day 10 now. Um, we didn't, even when they left a few days ago, They'd only taken a few things. They didn't think this would be something that they would need to. Um, they wouldn't. They didn't ever think that they wouldn't be coming back to Khartoum. At the moment, that's what it stands. We've locked up our house in Khartoum. Hopefully, it's still there when they get back. Um, but at the moment, there's no way back. There's only ways out, and even the ways out are quite difficult, quite dangerous. Um, it's it's not an easy situation. I can only say that it's not something that is um, very clear. There's lots of risks either way. And I'm just hoping to get them out in the, in the safest way possible. All right. Um, thank you for doc joining us this evening, uh, Dr. Al-Bashir. And I wish your family um, the best of luck in the coming days. I just want to go to my panel now because, Sally, I'm so conscious that Dr. Al-Bashir's family were able to, to flee. They are in a place of relative um, safety now. But there are so many citizens, ordinary people in Sudan, in the capital, who don't have the ability to flee, who don't have the petrol for the car, who don't have money, who are bunkering down. What is their experience at the minute? Yeah, I mean, I think people are completely terrified. Um, I was talking today, actually, to a Sudanese friend, a former colleague who is in Khartoum, and I literally heard a bomb go off in the background as he was um, speaking to me. And, you know, then he, he basically kind of, I think, jumped and dropped the call um, yeah, they're terrified and trying to get information has been so difficult Like getting internet access is very hard phone signal and so trying to get information on what are the safe routes, how can they get to, you know, any any place, how can they move basically is very difficult. Um, I think it's important to say that I've kind of been astounded by the support that Sudanese civilians have been giving to each other and the efforts that seem to be being made to try and get, you know, people who need medical care help, you know, to help people contact their families and to share information on safe routes. But of course, it's completely terrifying. And I think like a lot of the international media coverage has focused on the evacuations of foreigners, but really the focus, the main focus needs to be on the situation for Sudanese people. Mm -hmm. um, I was talking as well to, to someone today who he had applied for a Swedish visa before, just before the conflict came out. And the, sudden, uh, the Swedish embassy now has either evacuated or is in the process of evacuating their staff and they have his passport. And so now he's been left with no passport. And I think like the, you know, he, it means he can't leave the country. His, his options for traveling are very bad. And I think there's like a whole host of situations that are being created. It's not to say that it's bad to evacuate people, but there are a host of situations that are being that are being created when you focus on, you know, taking out the foreigners and present that as a, you know, a victory without evaluating the yeah. wider situation. Because for a lot of people, it would be aware that, you know, you're talking 40 degree temperatures here at the moment. You're talking limited access to water. You're talking food prices that have gone up by three or four times. And people who were living in very, very difficult conditions, challenging conditions, 
prior to this, Sally? Yeah, I mean, there are challenging conditions in Sudan, but there's also, you know, normal life, like, or there has been normal life, you know, uh, good times, parties, like people getting on with things. And I think there's been a huge amount of hope since Bashir left in 2019. And there were really like dreams, huge dreams by people that there was going to be democracy and there was going to be civil rule and that uh, civilian rule and that things were going to get better. And of course, like that's been kind of slowly dashed along the way, but actually this is the mm. most devastating blow to that. And it's really, it's a tragedy. The focus, uh, Tom Clonan, in Ireland has been on the 150 Irish citizens who have made the embassy aware that they are looking for assistance and looking to evacuate. 50 of those have been evacuated. There are 100 still there. In terms of assisting those people, describe for people in detail what's happening on the ground there. Well, just to echo what Sally was saying, this is uh, an appalling humanitarian catastrophe for the people of Sudan, the people of Khartoum. Uh, I'm hearing figures as high as, you know, three, 4,000 people very seriously injured. And, and, and I think in the coming days and weeks, we're going to learn that the death toll is much higher. And principally, the, the victims of this, and uh, we've experienced this at first hand, is, is you know, the civilian population. And uh, your previous contributor mentioned uh, a family member with special needs. You know, they're very, very vulnerable. And so some of the Irish citizens have family members and the big problem and the challenge will be trying to get across the city to whatever evacuation point uh, is available. And that's where the military personnel are, you know, they will be liaising now with whatever partner nation, whether it be the French or, or the Swedes, to get the Irish citizens and their dependents out. It's trying to navigate a, a safe evacuation corridor, uh, provide them with the communications link uh, so that they have that liaison with the Irish um, and, and to assist them possibly with travel documents, you know, with the diplomatic staff. And we've had the recent experience in Kabul in August of 2019. And similar to this, you know, the civilian population left entirely to their own devices with, and at the mercy of the Taliban. But again, a very similar operation from the Irish perspective, you know, with 12 uh, special forces, Army Ranger Wing, specialising in communications, advanced paramedic skills and providing security, particularly at the point of the perimeter, making sure that Irish people and their dependents can get in and, and, and get out. But um, it, it does highlight our lack of heavy lift capability uh, and, you know, our dependence on other nations to get our citizens out. Okay. And that's something we're going to have to look at. OK, I want to come back to that, but I just want to go to a uh, correspondent, Patrick Oyet, who is standing by now in Yuba in South Sudan to give us the very uh, latest and what's happening in Sudan. It was described today as the, by the UN as one of the most dangerous places in the world currently. Can you describe conditions, what life is like for ordinary citizens? This is not enough. Commission. Contact there. Um, we will try and get back uh, to you before we get the uh, opportunity. Uh, just to go back, I suppose, Tom, to what you were saying, we, the Irish, have very much been relying, have we not, on the, the support and really the generosity of other countries to get our own citizens out. Yeah, and look, we, we, we learned a lot from the, the experience in Afghanistan and the government have ordered a heavy lift aircraft, but the lead-in time is going to be about a year and a half. But the fact that we only have 12 troops because of the triple lock limit, I think that's something we're going to have to revisit. That's an arbitrary number, 
12 for a humanitarian evacuation, like we're increasingly with climate change, with man-made and natural disasters, we're going to be in a position where we have to get Irish citizens, independents and other nationalities out. So we need to look at, I mean, I think, you know, having it set at 12 is, is quite risky, actually, for the people involved. It exposes them to a higher level of risk than is necessary. They would have been better off at 30 or 40. Like other nations, for example, the Swedes are sending as many as four or 500 troops just to provide the adequate security and support for their people. And we're and, sending 12. Yeah, and when, when our aircraft arrives, when it is delivered, you know, between crew, logistics, security, resupply, you know, you're talking about larger numbers. And for us to meaningfully intervene and, and in the aftermath of this, to assist in the humanitarian effort to assist the Sudanese people, we should be allowed to send larger numbers of troops out on humanitarian missions uh, w- without recourse to the triple lock. Okay. I'm, I'm not talking about operational deployments. I'm just talking about emergency response. Okay. We should, we should look at that number. Let's just go, Martin, to those 100 citizens who are in Sudan who have contacted mm. the embassy who are looking to... Um, perhaps evacuate. What kind of progress are we making getting those people out safely? Well, look, what we're working with, obviously, uh, the government is working particularly with France, because France are leading uh, the operation, but they're working with other European colleagues as well. Um, and, look, uh, we have very skilled um, diplomatic uh, people from the Department of Foreign Affairs who are going out assisting uh, the 12 army rangers. And I fully agree uh, with Tom and his analysis. I think that triple lock Uh, uh, provision needs to be looked at and looked at sooner rather than later because we've seen in the last 12 to 18 months that there are instances uh, where we have to move fast uh, in a humanitarian scenario to evacuate uh, our people. But but, Um, but we still wouldn't have had the aircraft capacity at this point in time. Certainly not, no. And And um, does it not have to say, I know it is coming and it could be another year and a half, but is it not embarrassing, it's not exposed that we as a wealthy nation are left relying on the relationships that perhaps our um, defence forces have made with other countries to get our citizens out safely in this situation or situations like this? It's not ideal at all. And, like, uh, there has been uh, underinvestment in the defence forces for decades. And I think that's generally accepted by everybody. The government uh, commissioned a very high-level review on our defence capabilities, which was published uh, last year, that made significant uh, recommendations in terms of equipment, in terms of uh, of, uh, scaling up the skill set within the army. Uh, Unfortunately, it doesn't happen overnight. Uh, uh, Specialised equipment, like what is on order, does. there is a significant lead in time. So we Uh, don't have a timeline at the moment for getting those 100 citizens out safely if uh, they wish to do so? Well, we don't. Uh, but what I do know is that the Taoiseach and the, and the Tarnish, who was also the Minister of Foreign Affairs and Defence, are in daily contact and in cases hourly contact with our European colleagues. Everything has been done uh, to ensure uh, that uh, the 150 people, uh, the 100 that are remaining, 50 I understand, have successfully been brought to safety and the other 100 will be. Uh, because we will, uh, we're absolutely determined as a government uh, to ensure the safety. And, you know, the people who are on the ground out there for us, our diplomats, uh, our representatives in the Department of Foreign Affairs and the 12 Army Rangers are highly skilled. They're trained for these particular scenarios. And I have every confidence that there won't be any stone left unturned to ensure that these people are brought to safety and brought back okay. to their families. I, I did hear Tom Clonan, um, Richard Boyd Barrett from um, People for Profit saying that he was concerned that situations like this are being, I suppose, manipulated by the government who are 
trying to erode our neutrality. And that conversation's about looking at the triple lock, lock and perhaps removing the triple uh, lock feature is just part of a dismantling of our neutrality. Do you accept that? I, I, no, nobody could possibly have foreseen the events in, in Khartoum. This is a rapidly evolving situation and people are really in harm's way. I mean, I absolutely am committed to military neutrality. I do not believe that Ireland should join a military alliance and I've been on the record as saying that for a long time. But we do need to look at the triple lock as it applies to humanitarian assistance. And if we have these assets as a neutral state, you know, heavy lift capability, then we can provide the type of assistance that Sally was referring to, you know, helping the Sudanese when this has passed. But I, tonight, I would say there are 100 Irish citizens out there in a very fluid situation. It's a terrifying, traumatic experience for them. I, I don't, you know, I, I hope that everybody gets out. But when you think of our Ranger Wing personnel, our diplomatic staff, they're putting themselves into harm's way, as they did in Kabul, right into the eye of the storm. And every single person that they get out of there is a life transformed. And that's something, that's a skill set that we can build on as a nation Absolutely. and as a neutral state, you know, to, to be our unique voice in the world and to be constructive. And to potentially assist others. Uh, Sally, yeah. the UN were warning today that this um, fighting that we are seeing, this violence, could extend to the whole region and beyond. What do you think the likelihood of that is? And what do you think the chances of a, of a ceasefire at this point? Um, I mean, I was reading there that I think the RSF anyway have said that they've potentially agreed to a ceasefire, mm. but I mean, we don't know that that will hold. And they haven't um, held in the past. Exactly. In terms, in terms of the conflict spreading, I mean, we've already had the fighting in Tigray. Like, I was actually meant to go to Sudan last month and report on... Uh, the situation for refugees from Tigray who have crossed into Sudan. And I was denied a journalist visa to go there. But, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people have died in Tigray, you know. And now we have the conflict in Sudan. And as someone who's lived in this kind of more general region, it's just completely devastating. And at the same stage, like, I think at certain points, some of these conflicts were slightly predictable and there need to be questions asked mm -hmm. as to what the international community has been doing and you know, should be doing in the future in terms of that. And, and also, it shouldn't have had to get to this point before the eyes of the international community turn towards somewhere like Sudan. I don't. I think the eyes have been there, but I think there are allegations, certainly from a lot of Sudanese activists I speak to, that um, that they were treating these generals as statesmen when actually they should have been aware that there was a major threat to the potential of civilian rule in the future. And I think that now their concern is that with everybody evacuating, that that attention will no longer be there and that maybe, you know, things will transpire that are so much worse even and that that won't even be properly monitored. And yeah, hopefully people keep their eyes on Sudan. All right, we're going to have to leave it uh, there for the moment, but we will keep you up. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. ...in the situation uh, right through our bulletins tomorrow. My thanks to Dr Tom Cronin and to Sally Hayden and Dr El Bashir. Uh, after the break, we will have more on why Minister of State Niall Collins has issued a statement this evening. Separately, why Gardaí have started a GSOC excuse me, inquiry after investigator resigns over alleged link to Hutch Party. You're very welcome back. Well, Minister of State Niall Collins is set to face calls in the dial this week for clarification over the sale of council-owned land in County Limerick that's been the subject of recent claims. Deputy Paul Murphy of People Before Profit Solidarity says he intends raising the issue when the dial sits again from tomorrow. Tonight, in a statement, Deputy Collins said he was not a member of Limerick County Council in 2008 when the sale of a property in Patrickswell was approved and sold after what he said was a transparent process. Mr Collins also says in his statement that when the council executive recommended to Brough LEA Committee that the property should be put up for sale in January 2007, neither he nor his wife had any pecuniary or beneficial interest in that property and there was no disagreement to that decision. Well, for reaction to this, Fine Gael Senator Martin Conway is still here and Social Democrats TD Cian mm-hmm. O'Callaghan also joins me. So we know Cian O'Callaghan that Paul Murphy is seeking Doyle time uh, and wants Ned Collins uh, to come in to the Doyle and to answer questions on uh, some of these claims. Do you agree with Paul Murphy that there are questions to be answered? Yeah, there are, there are questions to be answered. The statement uh, that Niall Collins has issued tonight is extremely short. It leaves a lot of uh, questions unanswered. I think he should come into it all. He should uh, take questions on this. Uh, this shouldn't be just let drag on and, and build up. And I think given the level of reporting that there has been on this, the uh, you know, by the ditch and by others, that it's not okay just to issue a very short uh, statement like this and think that's the, the matter done. Uh, he owes it uh, to everybody, I think, to give a full statement and take questions uh, no, he would this. argue, I suppose, that he has clarified the situation, that he has put out this detailed statement this evening. But you say there's still further questions. There is, yeah. I, I don't accept it's a detailed statement. It's a few short uh, lines. And actually, there, there are issues there that he hasn't addressed uh, in it. It's, it's quite partial in terms of his response in this. So if he has nothing uh, to hide here, what he should do is come into the doll, give a statement and take questions uh, on this uh, if there's, if he's no case to answer, he should have no issue with doing that at all. All right, and we did, of course, um, contact the Finnafoil Press Office and contacted uh, Deputy Collins Steve. He wanted to come <coughs> on the program this evening, uh, but he was not uh, available. So, to you, Martin, do you expect Nell Collins to come into the dial and to give a statement and to take questions from people like Paul Murphy and, and Keno Callaghan? Well, first thing I'd say is that I've known Nell Collins all of my political career. Um, I, I find him to be a very decent person, an extremely hard-working uh, uh, colleague, um, both uh, within the Dáil and for the people of Limerick. Uh, the Business Committee, obviously, Paul Murphy has uh, uh, written or made some sort of contact with the Business Committee, and I've no doubt that the Business Committee will consider that and, uh, you know, they will 
uh, make a decision as to whether uh, dial time is necessary for this or not. And do you think dial time is necessary? Do you I, agree with Paul I, Murphy I, on I, that? I, I haven't studied the statement in detail, but you know it's something I accept Niall Collins' word in this. Uh, as I said, I consider Niall Collins a very honourable person, a very hard-working person. Somebody OK, but should he or should he not come into the dial and take further questions? The media have questions. We asked him to come on this evening. He wasn't yeah. available. We have the statement, but Cian said there are still issues to be addressed. Should he yeah, well, provide I, the dial with a statement and take those questions? Well, as I said, I haven't uh, studied uh, his press release uh, uh, or, or his statement uh, in any detail at all. Um, the business committee, uh, a request has been into the business committee, and I've no doubt the business committee will consult uh, the Count uh, Corla and uh, the party leaders will consult on it. And if it's deemed necessary, I have no doubt uh, that Niall Collins uh, will go before the dial if it's deemed necessary. Yeah, would you know like what... to see him just draw a line under this by taking questions? Uh, look, um, if Niall feels that uh, uh, he needs to draw a line under it, uh, uh, so be it. Um, I, I, I think uh, myself that um, he's issued a statement, he's clarified the timelines, and uh, really and truly, uh, there's a lot more important okay, so you things... Think, you think he has addressed the issue yeah, I, I, I'm, You I'm think he's drawn a line under well, it? I'm certainly, uh, for one, satisfied. Uh, perhaps others aren't. Uh, I can only speak for myself in this. So you're not speaking on behalf of the Fine Gael party? That's not there? Well, oh, no, no, not at all. I mean, uh, this only, uh, I only became aware of this and I came out to the studio tonight. So I certainly have no brief uh, uh, from Fine Gael in terms of this. But what I am uh, speaking of is somebody who's known Niall Collins with 20 years, who has seen the work he's done, who is in, in a neighbouring constituency. And I consider Niall Co Collins to be an extremely honourable, straightforward, hardworking politician. And okay. I take Niall as I find him. And I know Niall uh, probably better than a lot of people. And I do consider him to be very straight and honourable. All right. And uh, we will come back to this issue um, tomorrow evening, if it is brought up, I'm sure, in the dial tomorrow. And the invite remains open to Niall Collins to come on the programme. Now, moving on uh, to other news, Gardaí have begun an investigation into an allegation that a senior investigator with GSOC attended a party with Jared the Monk Hutch. News correspondent Richard Chambers joins me now from Mayo, where the GRA conference is taking place. Um, so we had this late development this evening, this guard inquiry that was requested by GSOC, and GSOC themselves have put out a statement. Uh, what does it tell us, Richard? Yeah, well, Kira. effectively the GSOC statement says it isn't the watchdog's role to watch over itself. So effectively it has handed over responsibility for investigating this matter to root out if there is any element of criminality involved in this uh, situation, which has become a huge concern. It has been treated very seriously by the Department of Justice, by Angarda Siakon and now by GSOC itself. So uh, GSOC says that it wants to restore public confidence in GSOC, that as soon as it became aware of this claim, that one of its senior investigators had told a fellow staff member that he was at a party that was also attended by Gerard the Monkhutch on the day he was cleared of involvement in the Regency Hotel shooting. Uh, effectively that it shut down its systems, it removed him from his position, uh, that he since resigned from that post uh, and now this is being handed over to the Garda uh, National Criminal Investigation Bureau. So they have begun their investigation into this matter. Uh, they will be looking to interview uh, the now former member uh, of GSOC about his involvement and whether or not there is any links to any criminal activity that is uh, obviously very much in the early stages of that investigation but it is something uh, that members here
here at the GRA conference, the rank and file uh, guard or representative body here uh, to having their conference in Westport and County Mayo. They're very concerned about this. They say that uh, they are very concerned because uh, criminal groups have previously uh, attended their homes. They've stalked Gardaí. Uh, they have been seeking data on Garda uh, whereabouts and operations. Obviously, the investigator in this situation at GSOC had access to Pulse as well. So that is something uh, which GRA members are concerned about. One thing they're also mentioned this evening as well, uh, Kira, is that they're actually concerned about the lack of urgency as they saw it from GSOC in terms of conducting its investigation. GSOC handing over an inter interim report uh, to Minister Simon Harris about what actions they've taken to date before handing over to Angarda Shiakana. The GRA not happy about that. They said, for example, that they've seen GSOC members arrive in helicopters at scenes of crashes involving Garda members. They say there was no such helicopters or nothing even of the sort in terms of urgency displayed by GSOC in conducting these inquiries. You also spoke to the Minister for Justice, Simon Harris. He now has had sight of that interim report from GSOC. What did he have to say? Uh, yes, yeah, so our colleague Ashney Kushtala uh, speaking to Simon Harris earlier on, saying effectively that now because this is being investigated by Angarda Shiakana, that this is not something which he is not going to be commenting on any further but to say that he does want to see public confidence restored in GSOC. And this is a very serious matter, given the public uh, uh, fixation, really, uh, with the Regency Hotel trial, with Jared the Monk Hutch, to have this story arriving on the front pages of national newspapers, after a lot of scrutiny was already fixed uh, on the criminal justice system for the handling of that trial. Uh, there is a big effort now uh, underway to try and restore confidence, and that is something which I think you're going to see a lot of uh, from uh, the... Uh, Department of Justice from Minister Simon Harris and as well as that from uh, the Garda Commissioner Drew Harris who is arriving here in Westport tomorrow to give his address uh, to delegates here at the GRA conference. There'll be questions for him too uh, when he does speak to journalists tomorrow. Uh, Richard, at the moment I suppose there's still a lot of sort of alleged uh, information. There's not a lot of uh, confirmed detail. Do we know that this individual uh, cooperate with GSOC as part of their uh, investigation or will it now just be part of the Guard's investigation to speak to this individual? Yeah, effectively, there, there, there is one investigation. There is one show in town in terms of the investigation into this incident. That is the NCIB investigation. Uh, from what we do understand, he did uh, cooperate and did speak to uh, management, senior investigators at GSOC. But uh, there will be a more meaningful uh, investigation, an interview, which will be conducted now by the, Gash the Garda uh, National uh, Criminal Investigation Bureau at this point. Uh, there is going to be a, a, a huge focus on exactly who he knows in terms of if he has any real contact or any regular contact with any members of the Hutch family. Uh, of course, it has also been reported and is understood from speaking to Garda sources that the person in question here may actually look to leave the country at some point uh, in the weeks ahead. So that is something they're looking, looking to try and do, try to wrap up their investigation into this as quickly as possible before that does happen. Yeah, very briefly, Richard, I mean, this is quite exceptional, isn't it? The Garda have never had to in investigate GSOC before. No, it's completely reversal of, of the roles there and that is something uh, which GRA members have quietly been talking about before because they haven't been shy, if you speak to the AGSI or to the GRA, they haven't been shy in criticising GSOC investigations in the past for taking too long in some examples in the, from the point of view of members of Angarda Shiakana. Uh, so for uh, the, G, the, the uh, Garda National Criminal Investigation Bureau to now be, for the first time, investigating activities at GSOC is a very, very real role reversal and it 
would go some way uh, to addressing some of the disquiet in Garda circles about how GSOC has conducted some things in the past. Uh, but really, this is very much the early stages of the inquiries uh, into this, into something which has uh, really spooked members of Angarda Sheikhana, it must be said. And it is something they want to see uh, rooted out to find all the facts relating to this. Uh, they say, of course, that there is no findings in terms of anything, no criminal links have been proven at this point in time. But that is very, very important to find out uh, over the days and weeks ahead. All right, uh, Richard Chambers speaking to us live from Mayo this evening. Uh, thank you for your time. Uh, Martin, you can um, understand the concerns of Gardaí here. GSOC holds confidential information on, um, on Garda Shia Khanna. Have they acted adequately, do you think? I fully and totally understand why Gardaí would be concerned. I think not just the Gardaí are concerned, uh, the public are concerned uh, that this situation has happened. I think people were just gobsmacked when this appeared in the papers uh, towards the end of last week. Um, I have to say the Minister immediately looked for a report from GSOC. Uh, that report was made available today. Uh, the matter now is being referred to Angarda Shikana. So I think from, from here on in, uh, we should just let Angarda Shikana carry out their investigation into they, this. They said there wasn't a sense of urgency. That's what the GRA uh, said this evening. Do you agree with that? Well, look at it. From the Minister's point of view, he, he looked for a report towards the end of last week. The report was uh, delivered to him either yesterday or today. Um, that, that is just a couple of days. I, to be fair to the chairman of GSOC, I think the chairman of GSOC realises uh, the seriousness of this situation and um, the fact that the minister was furnished with a report today and that there, it's now been referred to Angarda Shikana and Angarda Shikana will go about. And it's not just, it's been investigated by a very senior unit within Angarda Shikana. I would hope uh, that this would happen quickly. Um, you know, right. far be it for any of us to tell Angarda Shikana how to do their job because they're well capable of doing it. Uh, but I think uh, in, uh, we all would like to see this thing wrapped up quickly because it's critical yeah, uh, that confidence is restored in, in the, GSOC. The handling of this, cane is so important if we want to restore, maintain public trust and confidence in GSOC. Yeah, and it absolutely is critical that the public and indeed the members from Garda Shiakana can have full confidence in GSOC. It plays a very important role in terms of accountability. So it must be above uh, reproach and above question. And that's why it is very important that this investigation is done thoroughly and it's done swiftly. And I think it is appropriate that it's been handed over to, to Garda Shiakana. Do you think it needs, there needs to be a separate independent investigation, which some members of the opposition were calling for today? I think certainly the fact that the Gardaí are now doing this, so it's not GSOC investigating themselves, I think that is an important uh, step. And they, I do think they are well equipped uh, for an investigation like this. Uh, I think it's the National Bureau of uh, Investigation that are looking after it. So, that, you know, they are a serious unit within Gardaí Shia Connor. So I think that is positive. All right, we're going to have to leave that there for now. Lots more after the break, including why grants to renovate vacant homes are set to be increased. Well, grants to renovate vacant homes are set to be increased under plans the Minister for Housing, Dara O'Brien, will bring to Cabinet tomorrow. The move is aimed at addressing the rising cost of building materials. Currently, property owners can qualify for a grant of €30,000 to refurbish a vacant home, but if it's a derelict property, then a grant of up to €50,000. 
is available. Well, joining me to discuss this is Finnegan Senator Martin Conway and Social Democrat TD Keen O'Callaghan. And I'm also joined by Chartered Quantity Surveyor Nick Taff. Nick, you're very welcome to the programme. You. Um, you're coming at this with two hats. One, right. you're a Chartered Surveyor background, but also mm. because you yourself have bought a vacant property in Dublin yeah. two years ago that you want to turn into your home. Yeah, correct. Yeah, I'm, I'm in the process. So me getting involved in the report it gave first-hand experience. Uh, the, the project I'm undertaking is a barber shop located in Dunleary uh, from the area. I used to get my haircut there as a kid. So, you know, it, ha being able to live in that area, being able to turn this property into home for myself, something very special. And, uh, you know, it's very rewarding to bring the project to completion. OK, and when you bought it, it was... Vacant, not derelict, but vacant. It, it was it was vacant, but vacant for a long time. So there was a lot of a lot of work required to bring the structure, the building fabric up to you know up to where it needs to be. And how difficult and how costly has the work been? Uh, it is difficult and it is costly. If you think of Dunleary, it's a very old town. Uh, this would, would would be the oldest part of the town. So the buildings are late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds. You're dealing with random rubble. So there's a lot of you know structural upgrades that may be required with some of these buildings. Uh, there's building regulations that we have to understand and we have to work around them as well. So look, all these buildings are technically challenging and they're extremely costly and that's what we've outlined in the report and that's what the grants are for. And what are some of the things that, you know, people have to do when they, let's just say, identify a property? You're, mm -hmm. you're walking up your main street as you were, yep. you spot your old barber shop, there's a for sale sign and you think, could I? Is it possible to turn this into a, to a home? What are some of the initial obstacles and challenges that people face? Well, first is excitement. When you see a building that you can actually buy in your hometown, you know, but once you get past that, there's the reality of like, how much does it cost? How do you launch this project? And you know, for me, as a charter quantity sphere, that is something I do in my day-to-day -day job. So it's easy for me. And one of the recommendations we've made in the report is feasibility grants. And we've yet to see if, if that will happen, but that will help people. So that, you know, as an example, there's someone walking down the, their main street how do they get that project to site? And they do this in Scotland. A small feasibility grant, you, know, you can hire a QS or an architect or an engineer to launch that project. So one of the real difficulties here is that if you're a potential purchaser, mm -hmm. there's quite a large outlay before you even know if yes. the property is feasible Absolutely. to turn it into a home. Yeah. That's one of the difficulties. They're and if you spend a couple of thousand euro and you're told it's mm -hmm. not feasible, then you're out of Absolutely. quite a bit of cash. Yeah, yeah. And not only that, Raising finance is difficult for these properties. Mm -hmm. So if you can prove to the finance provider that this is a viable option and that you've done your correct due diligence, that will help you raise finance. Without finance, there's no project. Simple as that. And how difficult was it for you to raise finance? It was challenging, but again, I do it day to day. It's, it's part of my job. But it shouldn't just... These buildings shouldn't just be for construction professionals. They should be for everyone. And by you know, providing grants, feasibility grants and knowledge... We can, we can get people into these vacant buildings. Um, one of the things that's been proposed, uh, Martin, um, we understand in proposals that we brought uh, to Cabinet tomorrow, is to increase the grants yeah. um, for vacant houses by 20,000, so bring that from 30 to 50,000. Do you think that's enough, uh, given the, sort of the uncertainty <clears throat> that um, Nick outlined there? Well, I think Nick's proposal about a small feasibility uh, grant is an excellent idea. Um, I know that my colleague, uh, Senator John Cummins, um, 
nine months ago uh, maintained that the 30,000 wasn't enough and he maintained that the 50,000 for the, the derelict house wasn't enough. So, you know, unfortunately, governments sometimes move slowly, uh, but we are in, hopefully, the memo that go, that's going to Cabinet tomorrow, which is going to be a suite of measures, uh, including the elimination of development uh, uh, contribution charges uh, from all houses um, uh, going forward, from uh, big apartment complexes to the one-off uh, rural house. We've, in this country, 80,000 uh, planning permissions, uh, 80,000 uh, plans granted uh, by councils around the country that have not commenced. Uh, if we could even get 50% of those uh, commenced in the next couple of years, it would make a huge difference. Yeah, so just, what, just to go back, sorry, to yeah. the vacant properties yeah. issue, because I know there's dispute about how many vacant uh, properties we have mm. in this country. But I know the Society of Chartered Surveyors in Ireland mm. did this survey, looked at vacant properties, and they said, as it stood, only a quarter of them at the moment are viable for renovation because between the cost of the property and the cost of renovating the property, it will end up costing you more than what it's actually valued. So is an extra 20,000 going to make that much of a difference? There? Well, look, with the grant scheme that's in place at the moment, uh, which was announced last year, already 1,500 uh, people are in the scheme and are uh, renovating properties, which is not an insignificant figure. Uh, the, the extra 20,000 that's been announced, or hopefully has been announced tomorrow. Um, it'll be interesting to see what the uptake will be in that. But I've no doubt this is a moving feast. And if uh, the Minister and the Taoiseach uh, looking at the results and uh, the uptake, uh, if it's deemed that it's not uh, uh, sufficient, I've no doubt it will be revisited uh, because there's no silver bullet uh, to resolving this problem. Uh, we're, we're working our way through it. There's thousands and thousands of vacant buildings out there that are capable of being uh, refurbished. And you must also remember that there's also the SSIA yeah. grants as well uh, uh, in terms of the insulating grants up to 26,000. So potentially... If you're able to access that absolutely. too. Isn't one of the real difficulties here though too, Keen, and it's, again it's uh, identified in um, the Charter Surveyors Ireland report is accessing money from lenders. The, the banks as it stands are reluctant to hand over a mortgage to a vacant or a derelict property and, and we haven't addressed that yet. Yeah, it's very hard for people to access finance and the lenders are very reluctant. And even if someone qualifies for one of these grants, the lenders, most of those won't take these grants into account in terms of any finance that they're lending. So that definitely does need to be resolved. There is other issues apart from finance as well. There's, uh, there is issues when people have to go through the whole issues around building regulations, fire certs. And, you know, we could really do with every local authority having a one-stop shop. So if someone wants to do up a vacant or a derelict building, they can actually go there for advice and get all these things processed. It can take people months going on years sometimes to get their fire certs when they just want to uh, yeah, renovate. I... And that's if they manage to get the, past the other hurdles and the finance hurdles. So this should be so made easy. Who's trying to access any of those SEAA uh, grants for renovating their homes. Mm. If they go to these one-stop shops, you're looking at anywhere between a year and two years' wait. Yeah, yeah and, and this down. is exactly so. This this is stuff that she, people should be able to get advice there and then on the spot. And exactly the the point is, a lot of people don't have the expertise or the knowledge about how to go about this. So having people that are able to, in local authorities that could, could give you advice, and this could tell you if this is in a heritage area, what you need to do. See, it's not about like you know getting rid of these regulations. We have to have fair regulations sure. for but really good reasons. To helping people to navigate it that would make a big difference. Uh, one of the things, sorry, that the Sock Dems has talked about um, repeatedly, and I've heard Holly Cairns talk about it, is the need for a higher vacant tax on these properties. What are you proposing and 
How many more properties do you think it would bring onto the market? Well, the current government tax on vacant homes is 0.3%, and we think that's derisory, we think that's ineffective. We propose something much more substantial, a tax of about 10% on vacant homes. So we think there does need to be carrot and stick measures. There is about... That's quite the stick, isn't it? It, 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 it is, but we have an absolute housing crisis, so we, you know, I, I don't think we can afford to have uh, about 100,000 uh, homes around the country lying, uh, lying empty, not put into use. So we need those measures to encourage that. And yeah, would you encourage... agree with that in fairness, Martin? Not 0.3% is derisory, is negligible. It doesn't have the impact. Look, of, I prefer the carrot... Encouraging people to put no, vacant no, houses in the market. No, no, I prefer the carrot and the stick. I mean, it, to be fair, there's uh, probably about a third of those houses um, uh, that are vacant as a result of people in nursing homes. And there has been new changes to the nursing home scheme to allow these houses uh, now to be rented out. There's also probably about a third that are going through probate. So you think the 0.3% tax... No, but I, I, they're exempt, no, no, to be but, fair. But what, what, what I want to see is more carrot uh, than stick. I think that the 3% uh, is only been introduced uh, this year. It's the first time. Zero uh, 0.3%. Yes, but it, it's, it's only been introduced this year for the first time. But I think it's important as well that we do acknowledge the fact that tens of thousands of houses were built last year. There will be okay, tens of thousands built this year. We just want, we just want to and focus on the, on the vacant yeah. houses because there's, I suppose, something um, other than just providing houses, Nick. I mean, if you're renovating an empty property on a high street in the middle of Dunleary, it's yeah. so positive for that high street it, it, and for the feeling of a community in an area. Yeah, it is, it is urban regeneration. The area I'm in, Lower Georgia Street, there's about over half a dozen of us who've taken on these old buildings. It's transformed the whole street. Mm. It brings, you know, more footfall to the small shops. It just creates a better atmosphere. And ultimately, these buildings will be around a long, lot longer than we'll be around. This building isn't for me. This is building stock for the country. So do you and think the extra 20,000 will make a difference? Do you think it's sufficient? One, one point we need to remember is we've also upped the age profiles of the buildings that are eligible for the grants. So it's up to 2007 now. So when you have a building that's not as old as mine, if you have a nice 1990s, you know, cavity block, that money will go further. So, yes, in conjunction with moving the age profile of the buildings up to 2007, we'll capture ghost estates, we'll capture some better building in, buildings in good condition, and it will go further, yes. All right, look, we're going to have to leave it uh, mm. there for now. My thanks to my panel for joining me this evening. The show is available as a podcast on all major platforms, and you can also find us on Instagram and TikTok tonight at EMTV. But from all of the late team here, good night and take care. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.